0: chapter four of the old coast road from boston to plymouth by agnes edwards this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter four the romance of weymouth the paintings of john constable idyllic in their quietness dewy in their serenity how many travellers how many lovers of art superficial or profound yearly seek out these paintings in the south kensington museum or the louvre and stand before them rapt in gentle ecstasy the quality of constable's pictures delineates in luminous softness a peculiarly lovely side of english rural life but one need not travel to england or france to see this loveliness weymouth that rambling stretch of towns and hamlets of summer colony and suburb possesses in certain areas bits of rural landscape as serene as dewy as idyllically tranquil as constable at his best. Comparatively few people in New England, or out of it, know Weymouth well. Everyone has heard of it, for it is next in age to the town of Plymouth itself, and everyone who travels to the South Shore passes some section of it, for it extends lengthily, north and south, east and west, being the only town in Massachusetts to retain its original boundaries. And numbers of people are familiar with certain parts of it, for there are half a score of villages in the township, some of them summer settlements, some of them animated by all the year-round life. But compared with the other towns along this historic route, Weymouth as a whole is little known and little appreciated. And yet the history of Weymouth is not without amusing and edifying elements, and the scenery of Weymouth is worthy of the detour that strangers rarely make. Old Spain is the romantic name for an uninteresting part of the township, and, conversely, Commercial Street is the uninteresting name for a romantic part. It is along a highway stigmatized by such a name that one gets glimpses of a constable country, glimpses of rolling meadows, of fertile groves, of cattle grazing in elm-shaded pastures, of a road winding contentedly among simple ancient cottages and quiet thrifty farms. These are the homes which belong, and have belonged for generations, to people who are neither rich nor poor, cozy, quaint, suggesting in an odd way the thatched roof cottages of England. Not that all of Weymouth's homes are of this order. The Asa Webb Cowing House, which terminates Commercial Street within a stone's throw of the square of the town of Weymouth, is one of the very finest examples of colonial architecture in this country. The exquisite tracery and carving over and above the front door and the white imported marble window lintels spin an elaborate and marvelously fine lacework of white over the handsome red-brick façade. Although it is, alas, falling somewhat into disrepair, perfect proportion and gem-like workmanship still stamp the venerable mansion as one of patrician heritage. There are other excellent examples of architecture in Weymouth but the cowing-house must always be the star, both because of its extraordinary beauty and conspicuous position. Yes, if you want a characteristic glimpse of Weymouth, you cannot do better than to begin in front of this landmark and drive down Commercial Street. Here, for several smiling miles, there is nothing, no ugly building, large or small, no ruthless invasion of modernity to mar the mood of happy simplicity. Her beauty of beach, of sky, of river— Weymouth shares with other South Shore towns. Her perfection of idyllic rusticity is hers alone. Just as Weymouth's scenery is unlike that of her neighbors, so her history projects itself from an entirely different angle from theirs. While they were conceived by zealous, God fearing men and women honestly seeking to establish homes in a new country, Weymouth was inadvertently born through the misconduct of a set of adventurers not everyone who came to america in those significant early years came impelled by lofty motives there were scapegraces bad boys rogues mercenaries and schemers and perhaps it is entirely logical that the winning natural loveliness of this place should have lured to her men who were not of the caliber to face more exposed less fertile sections and men to whom beauty made an especial appeal The Indians early found Wessagusset, as they called it, an important rendezvous, as it was accessible by land and sea, and there were probably temporary camps there previous to sixteen twenty, formed by fishermen and traders who visited the New England coast to traffic with the natives. But it was not until the arrival of Thomas Weston in sixteen twenty two that Weymouth's history really begins, and then it begins in a topsy turvy way so unlike Puritan New England that it makes us rub our eyes, wondering if it is really true. This Thomas Weston, who was a merchant and venturer of London, took it into his head to establish a colony in the new country entirely different from Plymouth Colony. He had been an agent of the Pilgrims in their negotiations with the Plymouth Company, and when he broke off the connection it was to start a settlement which should combine all of the advantages with none of the disadvantages of the Plymouth Colony first of all it was to be a trading community pure and simple with its objective frankly to make money second it was to be composed of men without families and familiar with hardship and third there was no religious motive or bond that such an unidealistic enterprise should not flourish on american soil is worth noting the disorderly thriftless rabble picked up from the london streets soon got into trouble with the indians and with neighboring colonists and finally, undone by the results of their own improvidence and misbehavior, wailed that they wanted to go back to London, to which end the Plymouth settlers willingly aided them, glad to get them out of the country. Thus ended the first inauspicious settlement of Weymouth. The second, which was undertaken shortly after by Robert Gorges, broke up the following spring, leaving only a few remnants behind, Sir Fernando Gorges, who was not a Spaniard as his name suggests, but a picturesque Elizabethan and a kinsman of Sir Walter Raleigh, essayed, through his son Robert, an experimental government along practically the same commercial lines as had Weston, and his failure was as speedy and complete as Weston's had been. A third attempt, while hardly more successful, furnishes one of the gayest and prettiest episodes in the whole history of New England. Across the somber procession of earnest-faced men and women, across the psalm-singing and the praying, across the incredible toil of the pioneers at Plymouth, now flashes the brightly costumed and pleasure-loving courtier, Thomas Morton. An agent of Gorgas, Morton, with thirty followers, floated into Wessagusset to found a royalist and Episcopalian settlement." This Episcopalian bias was quite enough to account for Bradford's disparaging description of him as a kind of pettifoggy of Fernfail's Inn, and explains why the early historians never made any fuller or more favorable record than absolutely necessary of these neighbors of theirs, although the churchman Samuel Maverick admits that Morton was a gentleman of good quality but it was for worse sins than his connection with the established church that morton's name became synonymous with scandal throughout the whole colony in the very midst of the dun-colored atmosphere of puritanism in the very heart of the pious pioneer settlement this audacious scamp set up according to bradford a school of atheism and his men did quaff strong waters and comport themselves as if they had anew revived and celebrated the feasts of ye roman goddess flora Or the beastly practices of ye mad bacchanalians. The charge of atheism in this case seemed based on the fact that Morton used the Book of Common Prayer, but as for the rest, there is no question that this band of silken merrymakers imported many of the carnival customs and hereditary pastimes of old England to the stern young New England, that they fraternized with the Indians, shared their strong waters with them, and taught them the use of firearms and that merrymount became indeed a scene of wildest revelry the site of merrymount had originally been selected by captain wollaston for a trading post imbued with the same mercenary motive which had proved fatal in the case of weston and gorges whose name is perpetuated in mount wollaston brought with him in sixteen twenty five a gang of indented white servants finding his system of industry ill suited to the climate he carried his men to Virginia, where he sold them. When he left, Morton took possession of the place and dubbed it Maramount. And then he began the pranks which shook the colony to its foundation. Picture to yourself a band of sworn triflers, dedicated to the wildest philosophy of pleasure, teaching bears to dance, playing blind man's bluff, holding juggling and boxing matches, and dancing. According to Hawthorne, on the eve of St. John they felled whole acres of forests to make bonfires, and crowned themselves with flowers, and threw the blossoms into the flames. At harvest time they hilariously wasted their scanty store of Indian corn by making an image with the sheaves, and wreathing it with the painted garlands of autumn foliage. They crowned the King of Christmas, and bent the knee to the Lord of Misrule, such fantastic foolery is inconceivable in a Puritan community, and the maypole, which was its emblem, was the most inconceivable of all. This flower-decked abomination, ornamented with white birch bark, banners, and blossoms, was the center of the tipsy jollity of Merrymount. As Morton explains, a goodly pine tree of eighty foot was reared up, with a pair of bucks horns nailed on somewhere near the top of it, where it stood as a fair sea-mark for directions how to find out the way to mine host of Merrimount. Around this famous or infamous pole, Morton and his band frolicked with the Indians on May Day in 1627. As the indignant historian writes, Unleashed pagans from the perilous of the gross court of King James danced about the idol of Merrimount, joining hands with the lasses in beaver coats and singing their ribald songs. It doesn't look quite so heinous to us, this maypole dancing, as it did to the outraged Puritans. In fact, the story of Morton and Merrymount is one of the few glistening threads in the sombre weaving of those early days. But the New England soil was not prepared at that time to support any such exotic, and Miles Standish was sent to disperse the frivolous band and to order Morton back to England, which he did, after a scrimmage which Morton relates with great vivacity and doubtful veracity, in his new english canaan this new english canaan by the way had a rather singular career morton tells in it many amusing stories and one of them was destined to a remarkable perpetuity in english literature the story deals with the wessagusset settlers promising to hang one of their own members who had been caught stealing this hanging in order to appease the indians morton gravely states that instead of hanging the real culprit who was young and lusty They hanged in his place, another old and sick. In his quaint diction, You all agree that one must die, and one shall die. This young man's clothes we will take off and put upon one that is old and impotent, a sickly person that cannot escape death, such as the disease on him confirmed, that die he must. Put the young man's clothes on this man, and let the sick person be hanged in the other's stead. Amen, says one, and so says many more this absurd notion of vicarious atonement spun purely from morton's imagination appealed to samuel butler as worthy of further elaboration morton's new english canaan appeared in 1632 about thirty years later the second part of the famous english satire hudibras appeared embodying morton's idea in altered but recognizable form in what was the most popular english book of the day this satire appearing when the reaction against puritanism was at its height was accepted and solemnly deposited at the door of the good people of boston and plymouth and thus it was that morton's fabricated tale of the weymouth hanging passed into genuine history along with the blue laws of connecticut one cannot help believing that the mischievous perpetrator of the fable laughed up his sleeve at its result and one cannot resist the thought that he was probably delighted TO HAVE THE SCANDAL ATTACHED TO THOSE RIGHTEOUS NEIGHBORS OF HIS WHO HAD RUN HIM OUT OF HIS DEAR MERRYMOUNT. HOWEVER DRIVEN OUT HE WAS, THE maypole ABOUT WHICH THE REVELERS HAD DANCED WAS HEWED DOWN BY THE STERN ZEALOTS, WHO BELIEVED IN DANCING ABOUT ONLY ONE pole, AND THAT THE WHIPPING-POST. MERRYMOUNT WAS DESERTED. CERTAINLY WEYMOUTH, THE HONEY SPOT WHICH ATTRACTED NOT INDUSTRIOUS BEES, BUT ONLY DRONES, WAS HAVING A HARD TIME GETTING SETTLED. It was not until the Rev. Joseph Hull received permission from the General Court to settle here with twenty-one families from Weymouth, England, that the town was at last shepherded into the Puritan fold. These settlers, of good English stock and with earnest ideals of pioneers, soon brought the community into good repute, and its subsequent life was as respectable and uneventful as that of a reformed Rouet. In fact, there is practically no more history for Weymouth. There are certainly no more raids upon merrymakers, no more calls from the cricket colony, which had sung all summer on the banks of the river, to the ant colony, which had providently toiled on the shore of the bay. No more experimental governments, no more scandal. The men and women of the next five generations were a poor, hard-working race, rising early and toiling late. The men worked in the fields, tending the flocks, planting and gathering the harvest. The women worked in the houses, in the dairies and kitchens, at the spinning wheel and wash tub. The privations and loneliness, which are part of every struggling colony, were augmented here, where the houses did not cluster about the church and burial ground, but were scattered and far away. This peculiarity of settlement meant much in days when there was no newspaper, no system of public transportation, no regular post and europe was months removed a few of the young men went with the fishing fleet to cape sable or travelled on trading vessels to the west indies or spain but it is doubtful if any of the weymouth born women ever laid eyes on the mother country during its first hundred and fifty years the records of the town are painfully dull they are taken up by small domestic matters the regulations for cattle running boundary lines locating highways improving the town common, fixing fines for roving swine, or agreeing to the division of a whale found on the shore. There was more or less bickering over the salary of the town clerk, who was to receive thirty-three pounds and fourteen shillings yearly to keep a free school and teach all children and servants sent him to read and write and cast accounts. Added to the isolation and pettiness of town affairs, the winters seemed to have been longer, the snows deeper, the frosts more severe in those days. We have records of the harbor freezing over in November, and in March the winter's snow, though much reduced, still lay on a level with the fences, nor was it until April that the ice broke up in Four River. They were difficult, those days ushered in by the Reverend Joseph Hull. Through long nights and cold winters, and an endless round of joyless living, Weymouth expiated well for the sins of her youth, Even as late as 1767, we read of the daughter of Parson Smith of Weymouth, now the wife of John Adams of Quincy, scrubbing the floor of her own bedchamber the afternoon before her son, destined to become President of the United States, as his father was before him, was born. But the English stock brought in by the Reverend Hull was good stock. We may not envy the ladies scrubbing their own floors or the men walking to Boston, But many of the best families of this country are proud to trace their origin back to Weymouth. Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont, then New York, Rhode Island, and Connecticut attracted men from Weymouth. Later the Middle West and the Far West called them. In fact, for over a century the town hardly raised its number of population, so energetic was the youth it produced. As happens with lamentable frequency, when Weymouth ceased to be naughty, she also ceased to be interesting after poring over the dull pages of the town history one is sometimes tempted to wonder if perhaps the irreverent morton did not for all his sins divine a deeper meaning in this spot than the respectable ones who came after him one cannot read the new english canaan without regretting a little that this happy-natured fellow was so unceremoniously bustled out of the country whatever morton's discrepancies may have been his response to beauty was lively and true whatever his morals his prose is delightful all the town records and memorial addresses of all the good folks subsequent contain no such tribute to weymouth and paint no pictures so true of that which is still best in her as these loving words of the erstwhile master of merrymount and when i had more seriously considered the beauty of the place with all her fair endowments I did not think that in all the known world it could be paralleled. For so many goodly groves of trees, dainty, fine, round, rising hillocks, delicate, fair, large plains, sweet crystal fountains, and clear running streams, that twine in fine meanders through the meads, making so sweet a murmuring noise to hear, as would even lull the senses with delight asleep. So pleasantly do they glide upon the pebble-stones, Jetting most jocundly where they do meet, and hand in hand run down to Neptune's court to pay the yearly tribute which they owe to him as sovereign lord of all the springs. End of chapter four.